Good morning. Welcome to our uh, gym Bible study here at St. Paul's. A special welcome to those who are here in the gym, those listening locally on AM 850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. Uh, a few quick announcements before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of our Bible study today. Um, first, we are delighted to have Lutheran Hour speaker Michael Ziegler here as a guest preacher today. So you know this if you're at 8, but if you're going to one of our 1045 services, either in the sanctuary here uh, in the gym with Living Stone, uh, Reverend Ziegler is our guest preacher today for the Festival of Pentecost. That's right. That's why we have so much red in the building. Not everyone here is going to a Cardinals game afterwards. Um, but rather it's the Festival of Pentecost, and certainly uh, a special celebration that day is, and I always like to point out, not just because of the rushing wind and the disciples being able to speak, but even uh, more so that 3,000 souls were saved that day. Uh, one of the, the few instances where we get a direct number of the effectiveness, a quantifiable number of the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts and minds of the people of Jerusalem that day. But uh, as far as this Bible study goes, we're picking up where we left off last week. And uh, a gold star to anyone who remembers the, uh, what, was I, what was the phrase I said last week was the focus of kind of the five different sections. We only got to four of them. Yeah, no one gets the gold star. Who is the true disciple? Right? And we had that at the start with the lepers, the, the ten lepers and the nine who don't return, the one who recognizes who Jesus is. Um, and then we had that, we ended with the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, where Jesus tells a parable, and you have one guy who uh, is esteemed by the world, and it even says that he fasts twice a week, he gives tithes for all that he gets, and that's contrasted with the, the tax collector, the one who can't even lift his eyes towards God, but beats his chest and says, Lord, be merciful to me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus says the quite radical thing at the end, um, of that saying, it is this one, the tax collector, the one who recognized his sin and pleaded for mercy. He goes home more justified than the one who thinks he's righteous. And so then we get to where we're going to start today. Luke 18, verse 15, and I am going to attempt, we'll see, we'll see how far we get, but I am going to attempt to get us all the way to the triumphant entry by 1030, um, which would be just over a chapter. I think we can do it. But we'll, we'll see. Uh, so we start with Luke 18, starting at verse 15. And I had a laugh. If anyone saw what I was doing for the past 10 minutes before I started this Bible study, uh, chasing after my own child, uh, who was running from me, who thinks it's quite hilarious to do so. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now this is one of those things where not only some historical context, but then also some application, I think, uh, to our own attitudes towards things today can be seen in ways that we might not always see when we first read the text. So when we read this, we generally read this how? Do we, do we read it as a... Uh, a difficult text or an easy one? Easy, right? Uh, hopefully no one is like, I don't know about that, when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. But in the context of the text, is this an easy statement? Let the children come to me for the disciples, or does this seem odd? Yeah, odd, right? In fact, we don't know exactly how many, or was this you know, a, a large family? Was there several families? All we read is that they were bringing children, even infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They told these people, don't bring your children to the rabbi. He doesn't have time for them. Or perhaps he's got important stuff to do. Don't bother him with your children. Now, there's a couple things at play here. It was not totally uncommon for a rabbi to perhaps bless a young child. Um, and sometimes there's even reports that it was often done on something like the Day of Atonement, right? You'd bring a child and the rabbi would bless him. Uh, but the other thing that's at play, the reason why the disciples, I believe, react so negatively in, in somewhat of an odd way if you read it in our American context, is because of how children were viewed in the first century. Uh, children were kind of a problem until they got old enough to contribute. 
Now, I will say, as someone with an 18-month-old daughter that is adorable, she is difficult at times, right? An absolute joy, but a difficult joy. And every parent in here knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? And I, I mentioned this almost a month ago. You know, you, you teach her something, you're like, oh, cool, she's got a new skill, and instantly she applies that to making things more difficult, you know, like using a fork and then throwing food across the room, <laughs> right? Using, the fork becomes an effective trebuchet for her. But children are a joy in our culture. So many times, and rightfully so, we rejoice uh, in the birth of a child. So many times we see the love that God has for children shown through people like our ECC teachers, um, through parents, uncles, grandparents, godparents, uh, even kindergarten teachers, right? Uh, I've told Mrs. Hankey, our kindergarten teacher, a couple times this year, I don't know how you do what you do, but it's amazing to see it and to see it each and every day. And yet when the disciples hear this, it's difficult because in the culture, as I said, children were not viewed very highly. If you had enough means, you probably hired someone to essentially raise your child until they got to about 12, 13, and they could, you could kind of start teaching them either the family trade, if you're a nobleman, how to run your family estate. Um, but that's the sort of guardian that Paul mentions in Galatians. It's this idea that you'd have this trusted slave um, or servant literally raise your own child. You know, sure, they might sleep in your house, but you're not getting up at 3 a.m. to change diapers, right? Um, and you're not concerning yourself with it if they're crying, teething. You tell the servant to go take the child into a, another room. Um, culture in those days did not see, uh, did not see it as a, how, how should I put it, uh, a noble vocation to rear young children. It was a necessary one, yes, but the children themselves were not uh, incredibly valuable to the overall society. So then, the disciples, applying their own conventional societal wisdom from the day, were right, in a sense, in society's eyes, in saying, don't bother our teacher with these little ones. Now, here's the thing I think so neat and so awesome and such a great reminder as to how God works and how God calls us to be. Jesus' words, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What did I say the question was last week for those five sections? Who is the true disciple? <laughs> and in this case, you see the disciples will be charitable, not understanding. I'm not going to say they were not, you know, but not understanding what it means to be a true disciple. And Jesus pointing out that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, is for ones like these, for these children. And it's, these, it's verse 17 here. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, have you ever stopped and thought about what that actually means? What 18 verse 17 actually means. What does Jesus mean when he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it? We've said it. I mean, we say it every time in our baptismal rite. This is, it's from... Uh, Mark in our baptismal, right? But it's one of the phrases that we at St. Paul's use out of baptism. Yeah, Dan. Yes. So we, we can't understand because... Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You're, you're on the exact right track, right? What is a child? Think about a child's circumstance. And think about it in a couple ways. One, what... A child is dependent. That's exactly right, Ruth. A child is completely dependent. There's a reason that they learn mom and dad's name and then shout it when they're in trouble or when they wake up in the middle of the night and want to be comforted, right? They recognize that they can't get out of their crib themselves. They can't make their bowl of oatmeal. They can't get uh, their diaper changed themselves. Though my daughter on occasion has tried to rip off her diaper herself and on one occasion was successful, and that, did not, that was not a morning present I wanted to walk into. But you think about how a child is, uh, a child's understanding of who they are to their parents. And again, remember, it says even infants. These are young children, all right? So don't think of like a teenager who's trying to rebel here. That's not what Jesus is saying. But a young child understands that they are wholly and completely dependent on their parents for food, for comfort, clothing, for shelter, if you have a pet, for animals, right? A child gets it. And then you think about how we mature and how we quote-unquote grow 
and how in that quote-unquote worldly maturity, how easy we lose sight of what that means in terms of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know, that everything we have is dependent on Him. Then there's a second component to it. Um, one, what does a child need to travel somewhere? How, how are these children being brought to Jesus? Oh, I just gave it away. How are these children coming to Jesus? They're being brought to Him, right? And especially on a day like Pentecost, what an excellent reminder it is that the, the Holy Spirit has called enlightened us in the faith, sanctified us in the truth, and keeps us in that truth. That we haven't gone ourselves and, and found this We haven't earned it. We haven't decided that rather God brings himself to us. We've been brought into his kingdom. Uh, And what a joy it is to to see a baptism where we see those little children being given that promise of the Holy Spirit. An excellent reminder on a day like today, Pentecost, where we are constantly reminded in in both um, our readings, but also in our sacred music this morning, our hymns and our songs here in, in Living Stone, that it is the Holy Spirit that keeps us in that faith, that comes to us and brings us to the Lord. Um, and again, once more, how easy is it for us in our quote-unquote maturity as we age to think we are the ones who are doing this, right? And then the third thing, and I think this should not be overstated, and I got a whole new perspective on this, I will say, during Vicarage, actually working in a school for a longer period of time, a full year, right? And getting to teach religion in, the, in these classes with kindergartners, going down to the ECC to, to teach um, chapel, even just seeing how they respond in church um, to when they know a hymn or something, right? How does a child worship? Joyfully. And now, I want, I want to preface this. I know sometimes they get fussy. Sometimes they get a little bit uh, cranky. But when I mean joyfully, I mean when, when they hear Jesus loves me and they can sing it, what are their voices like? They belt it. They're not whispering. They belt it. Right? Around Christmas time, when you see the Christmas program, I mean, this year at our Advent services, we had our ECC for two of our 11 a.m. Wednesday Advent services come and sing during um, the prelude right before the start of the service. They belt their praise. I mean, it, it, it borders on shouting, maybe. <laughs> but there's a passion behind it, a joy behind it, a simplicity behind it. They don't question, hey, God, if you're really there, let me hear, hear these words. They don't start by saying, you know, I really haven't felt you lately, God, but I'll still sing Jesus Loves Me. Right? A child worships their Lord when they, and, and this is not only a credit to their parents, their families, their community, but also certainly, like I said, their teachers. A child worships the Lord with a passion and a zeal that I'd say is almost unrivaled. Yes, Jen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, so the comment was made for those listening. One of the, the aspects of this, and actually all of them, is right, they lack a self-consciousness. Um, they lack an understanding of what they themselves are doing in relation to the world around them. And that's actually, in this way, a, a good thing. And if you think about the Christian life, maybe we should be a little less self-conscious. When, and that word self, like you said, Jan, that is uh, critical. Yeah, Carla. Yeah, yeah uh, bring up Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Where is the power of salvation for all who believe? Right? And again, I'm not saying that we as adults are ashamed. I'm not, don't hear me, you know, you listen to Christmas, uh, we have plenty of adults belting Silent Night, or Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or I know my Redeemer lives on Easter. I'm not saying that we don't do this at times. But when you think about the overall mindset of a child, and and how they then approach um, their life, and their understanding of life, and the growth in their life, I think you see something that's even a, a little deeper than we can even fully understand in what Jesus says here about the, you know, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child, whoever does not receive the rule and reign of God, what God is doing, has done, will be doing through Christ like a little one. Uh, And I'll give a shameless plug for my daughter. Uh, One of the things that brings me the most smiles I've ever, uh, is being a parent, is at the end of our prayers, she starts by, she ends the prayers by saying amen, and then, yay God! And uh, we did not, I will say we stole that idea, but the first time she actually did that, you're just like, that's incredible. And now you see her excitement. 
And you think about that when, if we, you know, if we ended our prayers, not that we have to say, yay, God, but with that sort of passion and excitement, the joy, the zeal, you know, uh, that's a word we don't always use in a positive sense in today's culture. You think of a zealot as someone being maybe narrow-minded or, or overly focused, but in a biblical sense, to be zealous for the Lord is a tremendous thing. Uh, and so if we could be a little bit more childlike in our zeal, I think it would uh, be to our benefit. All right, I will open it up. Yes, Bev, and any other questions before we move on to the, the rich ruler? Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great uh, point, that a, a child expects sincerity, and a child themselves are sincere. So the story was shared again for those listening on the radio of a time where a four-year-old was having a tough time. Uh, Bev Grunewald, our ECC director, lovingly said they would make sure, or she would make sure that she prayed for him, and, and the kid looked up and said, okay, now. <laughs> you know, and again, that's exactly what I think when you start unpacking this and how a child approaches uh, life with God, in life in relation to the world, there's a lot of spiritual maturity, I think, in not undervaluing those words, you know, meditating on them and thinking about how, in a very real sense, you could have that childlike faith or display a better childlike faith in your, in your own life. Um, yes, bud? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say this is almost an inclusion. So the, the comment was made that the word belong seems kind of weird. And what I think is if you look in the context there, you see that what are the disciples saying, at least initially, they don't belong in your presence, right? You, you're not significant enough to be in the presence of Jesus. He is too great for you. And in, in a very true sense, Jesus is saying, there is no one that I'm too great for. I will, from the least of these to the greatest, right? Um, and so, in a sense, it's, I think it's more of an inclusion phrase rather than saying there's a group that the kingdom of God does not belong to. He's reminding the disciples, like, even these, even these little ones that society says don't have much value, um, even them do we, uh, are we reminded the kingdom of God belongs. All right. We're probably not going to get to the triumphant entry. That was, <laughs> that was three verses. All right. Uh, but uh, going on to verse 18, Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And honor your father and mother. Now, couple things to note here. One, this is probably a pretty familiar account. It, it occurs in some form in each of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And here in the Luke account, uh, it's not a young man, but we read a ruler. And the word ruler is just that, one who probably had authority or at least in a state of some considerable size. Right? And he says to Jesus, good teacher. Now, Jesus' response, does that strike you as a little odd? A little bit, right? No one is good except God. Uh, we're going to go back to that question I kept asking last week with the lepers. Why was the one leper, what, what was his realization? Jesus is God. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one to whom thanks and praise for God should be given. Right? So what, in Jesus' response here, where he says, no one is good except God alone, what would a possible correct answer be? That's why I called you good. Right? Uh, because you are God. Now, let's not be too harsh or too, too critical of him here. It's a little bit understandable that, you know, and he was trying to give him a little bit of flattery. Right? So Jesus' response, well, keep the commandments. Uh, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, instantly, what, what do we recognize about this individual? Self-righteous, what did you say? Yes, yeah, self-righteous, 
perhaps a little pretentious. You know, even if you would have said something like, I have tried from my youth to keep these as best I could, you would still say that's a little bit self-righteous. But he says, all these I have kept, I have done this, all these I have done from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack then, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Uh, so often you see this happen with Jesus' conversations, right? It starts one place, and really Jesus gets to the heart of the matter pretty quickly. So this man's wanting to hear what? What do you think this man's wanting to hear from Jesus? Keep the commandments. Actually, the first response, he goes, cha-ching! Got it. Right? And when Jesus hears his reaction to that, Jesus instantly cuts to the heart of what the problem in this man's heart is. Cuts to the core of what the problem in this man's heart is. And he had many things, and so he said to him, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, and I'll get to you in just a second, Jan. Uh, One interesting thing I think we shouldn't negate here. This man loved what? His stuff, right? Does Jesus say you will have no stuff? No. Is this an account where we're supposed to take from it and say we're not supposed to have any things? No. What is that stuff? And that's why I think the next word is so interesting that Jesus uses to describe what what he has in store for him in heaven. That's his treasure. right? And the treasure of not only society, but the treasure of his heart. You don't become grieved over things that don't matter. You become sad, you you feel that emotion when something is said or done and it hits you where it hurts, right? I'm five foot seven, if someone came to me and says, you'll never be able to dunk a basketball, I won't feel sad, right? I came to to terms with that a long time ago. But if someone were to come to me and say, you know, you're not really being a, a, a good father, that all of a sudden hits at a different, now please don't come to me and say that because that will hit me in the core, right? That's something I cherish and value deeply. Or, or you're not being, you know, a, a good husband, or you're, you're failing with something with ministry, or you're like these things that we care deeply about. Um, or if, you know, you make fun of the angels instead of the, you know. No, that hasn't stopped anyone, though, has it? Uh, all right, Jan, what's your question? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're right on the right track, Jan. So the comment was made that, um, you know, sometimes this can be taken so far out of context that what Jesus is, is getting at is what's at the center of this man's heart. For each of us, this is probably a different thing. And we have different things like this, right? Um, for each of us, this could be stuff, but it could also be, I don't know, a job title. It could also be a, a location that you live in. It could also be, you know, there's... A, you could fill it in with almost anything, right? But if you treasure it more than you treasure what's in store for you in heaven, in store for you in Christ, it becomes that problem. Um, yeah, this is not a... This is less about stewardship and more uh, about one's heart, about one's relationship with God. Um, and too often it is taken as just, oh, here's a stewardship text. The rich guy didn't want to give to the poor. Right? All right, I'm going to keep reading, and then we'll get to some... Oh, okay, we have more questions. I am not going to get to the triumphant entry, am I? All right, Mark and then Ruth. Uh, I think there is probably something there. Um, elsewhere, you know, he's, he gives us the, what's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Um, Jesus is fairly intentional when he does these things, but what the exact purpose is, was he, was he trying to... I don't know, so to speak, bait him into that answer? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think, I, and that's a question for Jesus, but I do think there is, he definitely picks the ones that he knew the guy was going to want to hear, right? And the ones the Pharisees so often focused on, at least when it came to society and the external, how, how they appeared elsewhere. Uh, because, honestly, the second table of the law is, your ex, is the external table, 
And the, the first table of the law of the Ten Commandments, the first through third commandments, that's kind of the internal table. Uh, that's the, that concerns how you view God. And even Sabbath, something that can be done externally, that's ultimately still an internal command, right? Because just because you're seated in worship, you, cannot be, you could fail to keep the Sabbath and be absolutely seated in worship. All right, Ruth. Yeah. Well, and we're going to get to this. So the, the disciples, <laughs> the disciples have one of the, I think the, the best, or at least Peter, Peter gets called out by name, has one of the most um, face palm sort of answers in the entire Bible here in this section where Jesus just had to be thinking, oh boy, oh boy. Um, you know, it's the type of thing in the South, they'd say, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> Because, the, and you're going to get to that in a minute, so don't skip ahead there. We still have to get through a little bit more. But you're right that the, the fact that he says, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Internal life, sorry, eternal life. He is missing, he is missing the boat entirely. So when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was ext- extremely rich. Jesus, saying that he becomes sad, sad, uh, sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, two things to note here. You may have heard that there's two kind of understandings of what that camel through the eye of a needle is. That there's some thought that there was an entrance, one of the gates um, in Jerusalem was known as the eye of a needle, and it was small enough that a camel couldn't, could not get through it. Or you might be thinking what I think we probably mostly think when we first read it, which is an eye of a needle, small, a camel, even on a large needle, a camel's not going through it, right? Either way, the point is the same. So don't get too caught up in, is he being figurative, or was there a historical place that's known as the eye of the needle? Uh, The point is, uh, it can't get done, right? It ain't happening. You can try all you want, you won't make it happen. And so when Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, is he saying, I'll give you like three options here. Is he saying, if you have money, it's hard to be a Christian? All right, there's one option. Is he saying those who are wealthy, um, they don't really like God? No. Or is he saying... Uh, for those who are wealthy, sometimes the, the success that they've garnered creates this very attitude. Right? And, and it's just common nature. It doesn't have to be money. Think about, I mean, think about how easy it is when you've done something well, anything at well, to give yourself credit. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know what all of you guys do for a living, but I'm sure there are some of you who do presentations or have to make presentations or did at one point of your career. And when one goes well... What's the easiest thing to do? Oh boy, I really nailed that, didn't I? Right? Uh, and if you think pastors are immune from this, I will tell you, no. We constantly need to be reminded it is not you, but the Holy Spirit. And that's good. I mean, that's not, a pastor is not unique. All Christians need that reminder. Uh, you know, think about even an athlete or, or even someone who's a, a great entrepreneur. Uh, how easy does it become to think, look what I built. Look what I... Can do. Look how far I hit that ball. Right? And I think when you, when, you, when you look at it in those terms, you start to see just how applicable a text like this is in our, in our daily life. That it's not just about having stuff. right? It's not even about having stuff you really like. But it's about an attitude that is not focused and reliant on God. It's about having an attitude that's not like a child. Uh, and I think there's some pretty strong intentionality that this occurs right after that account about bringing the children to Jesus. Uh, those who heard it said, then who could be saved? <laughs> now, why is that the response? Twofold. One, they understood. The eye, the camel through the eye needle wasn't happening. But two, in those days, what were material riches a sign of? God's favor. Yes, I, I heard a bunch of you say it. God's favor. So if those who have the favor of God can't be saved, how are those who don't have God's favor supposed to be saved? 
If those that we've always thought have that inroad with God, and he's proved it because look how successful they've been, how are the lonely, the downtrodden, the cast out, how are they supposed to have a chance? Right? And so really this is a, a radical, more radical than we give it credit for, statement that, that a wealthy person is actually difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Uh, echoing the words that began Luke from the angel Gabriel to Mary when she says, how can this be? And there the angel Gabriel says, God has the power to do anything. We translate that often, uh, nothing is impossible with God. Can anyone think of another instance where someone said that? How can this be? That's impossible. And the response by God was, nothing is impossible with God? What? Oh, Virgin Mary, yeah, I just said that one from Luke 1. Zechariah? Oh, yeah, the bread of life discourse. How, how, what does this man mean by eating his flesh? There it is. But what I was thinking of in my head is Abraham and Sarah. Um, that you have Sarah, laugh it off, scorns God. Says, I'm old. That's not going to happen. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's wishful thinking, Abram. But that's just a little aside. We can keep going on in the text. Uh, so those who heard it said, who can be saved? But, he, but Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, here we go. See, sir, we have left our homes and our possessions for you. <laughs> and why I laugh at that is uh, Peter, Peter's like tapping him on the shoulder. Well, we've done that. We're, we're, we're not rich anymore. We've left it all for you, so we're good. We've done it, right? And, and you can see even in the disciples' minds how backwards this is. And I mentioned this last week. This continues to be the case. I mean, they, they argue all the time about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. They're thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're thinking who's going to be second in command. Who's going to get to rule over people? Who's going to get to uh, call the shots? Even, and I, I, like I said, I said this last week, even on ascension, even on ascension, the disciples still have not quite got it. <laughs> They've not quite got it. Because on ascension... And they say, all right, Jesus, you rose from the dead. We didn't understand that, but you helped us out. But now are you going to reestablish that kingdom here on earth? Is it at this time you're going to do it? We've been waiting. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, this is the attitude that he's driving. It goes back to chapter 17, one word in service. Yes. Correct. Yes, yeah, so the comment was made that it really echoes going all the way back to 17, the, the unworthy ser servant who says, uh, so also when you've done all you've been commanded, you should say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Yeah. And, and again, I, I try not to be too harsh on Peter. Uh, sometimes he gets a, a bad rap, right? You've got the, the fish where he says, oh, I can't catch any fish, we know better than you, Lord. Uh, we got the fact he lost to John in the foot race to the tomb. Um, John likes to throw that in there, right? Uh, there's several other instances where, you know, Jesus, where Peter rebukes Jesus, right? Uh, Peter is the one by name who's listed as denying Jesus, right? Even though all the disciples scattered. It wasn't like the other ten stood there confident and, and secure. They all scatter. So I try not to be too harsh on Peter, but this is at least one instance where you, you kind of see the humanity of these disciples at, at, on display. That you hear this, Wait, so this rich guy, he's not in because he hasn't given up his stuff. Hey, I've given up my stuff. Check that box. And so then Jesus' response really um, is not only for the disciples, but certainly for us as believers in, in ethos, a remembrance of what we are called to value our faith as compared to the world. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife brothers or parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So you have here the disciples, the people in attendance, they have a complete misunderstanding of what that kingdom of God is all about, what that kingdom of God looks like. And you see that with not only the children coming to Jesus, you see that not only going back and looking at the Pharisee versus the tax collector, you see that not only going back 
um, to something like chapter 17. But then we also see where we ourselves sometimes fail to keep that proper perspective on the kingdom of God. Uh, how many times, yeah, it's easy to, to hit out on the people who said, well, you know, I'm rich, so I, I should be loved by God. But how many times do we find ourselves uh, forgetting or propping ourselves up or pushing something in particular that we really want um, regardless of what that does for the kingdom, regardless of what that does for the faith life of my, my sibling, parent, child, neighbor. Um, and all of a sudden we start checking that same box that, that Peter and this ruler checked and forgetting what the kingdom of God is all about. All right, any quick questions on that before we get into Jesus? All right, yes. Yep. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the study Bible has a much more pious, I guess, opinion of Peter's response than maybe me. Or is there, are they at least a less, less cynical than I am in terms of what he's getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, I think in both cases, though, it could be seen as law in the sense that in, in the sense that if any of those things um, if any of those things are keeping you from the kingdom of God house home family child even child the, the, earlier in Luke right Jesus even says whoever does not hate his his father and his mother I mean that's a radical statement but what is he saying the faith in Christ or that time or you're trusting God you're hoping God is the center the core for the basis of your life. Yes. Yes. And sometimes, as Christians, we lose things. Homes, spouses even, children even, right? Um, but there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And therefore, it is the central core of our being. And the second that we take that core of our heart, that core of our being, and, and, and take it off of that, well, then we've, we've created an idol. Uh, Pastor Thompson last week had a little phrase that I really like, that our hearts are little idol-making factories. <laughs> and, and how true that is, right? How true that is. Um, and replace it with item du jour. It's not just money. And it's not just family. It can be anything that draws you away from Christ at the center, your faith at the center of your very existence. Um, all right, Ruth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes, exactly. Just like the phrase of hating, you know, hating brother and sister, you know, whoever does not hate. Jesus is not commanding you to abandon those things. He's not commanding you to hate your family. The priorities, yes. Exactly right. It, this is a question of priorities, at least internally, in, in how we, um, really the desires of our heart, if you think about that. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's get to 18 verse 31, and then we'll, uh, I was hoping at least to get to the 10 minutes, but we're not even going to get close. Uh, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Uh, now, we've talked about passion predictions in here in the past. I've been a part of it. I know in some of our other um, Bible studies, like Living Way, we've talked about the different passion pr predictions. Uh, but this one, I think, is interesting because you see this at the end. Uh, what the disciples... We, we get an insight into what the disciples took. And it makes Holy Week, their actions during Holy Week, make a little bit more sense. They understood none of this. Right? They didn't get it. 
And, and whether or not that's because they're like, well, this is just a literal statement, or a figurative statement, not literal, or whether they're, they were so uh, either blinded by their own view of what the kingdom of God was supposed to look like, they don't understand that this right here is a statement about how God will enact the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, in their very midst. Right? You think about what Jesus says here. I'm not only going to die, but what? On the third day I will rise. None of them understood these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Um, and that word grasp there is gnosko in the Greek, or that's the root word of it. Uh, it means to understand or, or to know. You know. So I actually like grasp. I think that's a good translation because of how, but it's a very modern idiom, you know, uh, that idea of grasping something. That they could not wrap their mind around what this was that they were literally walking into. They're going to Jerusalem. Like I said, verse 19, or chapter 19, starting at verse 28, you get the triumphant entry. Like, these things are about to happen. And they're still blind to them. And so then they run into a blind guy. <laughs> I have to laugh sometimes, because you think about the, the time, you know, this, these are all intentionally happening, right? So here they are, blind to what Jesus is saying plainly before them. And then they run into a blind guy. Uh, so starting at verse 35, As they drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what does that remind you of from last week if you were here? The lepers, yeah, so there's three instances here, and I want you to turn back because it's all in a very close span. So if you go to 17 verse 12, or verse 13, sorry, those ten lepers say the following words. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now I want you to skip ahead, so I saved my notes from last week because I was going to, um, you skip ahead just a little bit to um, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we're in chapter 18, verse 13. What is that tax collector say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now, we're getting uh, to this blind guy, and he says what? Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Okay. And it's interesting does he ask the lepers? No. Does he ask the, the, the tax collector in that parable? No. But here he asks. And he says, what do you want, to do? What do you want me to have, uh, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it. And they gave praise to God. Uh, now, I think something that is interesting with this whole two chapters, there's still just one guy who recognizes to whom does praise belong. That one leper. Because you notice they don't say they, they glorified Jesus and gave praise to God. But rather, they glorified the event. And again, this is all foreshadowing of uh, you know, the true blindness that the people of God have for what's happening right in their midst, the blindness that his disciples have. They can't understand it, they don't understand it, and they won't understand it, even, at least even until they see it themselves. And that's the whole enacting of the, the kingdom of God, not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection, right? Even in that upper room, you think about how uh, Thomas must have felt like a week after, two weeks after. Probably pretty silly, right? But these are guys, these are guys who struggled. The, the people of God in this day, they struggled to see what God was doing right there in their midst. And, and I, in one way, am thankful that we have the benefit of living uh, in this time of the church and not necessarily in the first century. Because if we were to be honest, I, I, I don't know how many of us would not have just fallen into the same boat, Right? Um, and we're going to get with the triumphant entry. I don't want to take too much from that, but I've always thought, I wonder how many folks shouted Hosanna 
and five days later shouted, crucify him. And uh, thanks be to God, I was not born in the first century because I've always thought, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if I would have been one of them. And you think about Pentecost here today. Uh, what's the statement made by Peter when, when the, the people inquire of him uh, after our reading in Acts 2? So it's not what our reading stops with, but after that, Peter reminds him, Jesus, whom you crucified, he has been raised from the dead. That's the, the proclamation on, on Pentecost. Jesus, who you crucified, has been raised from the dead. <laughs> uh, so then they go, oh no. <laughs> uh, what shall we do then? And again, thanks be to God, this is what grace and mercy looks like. Because if it was up to one of us, if we were in that situation, we might say, well, you should have thought about that about three months ago. <laughs> or you killed him. Right? Or two months ago, I guess, 50 days. But what's Peter's response led by the Holy Spirit? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, and I, I will say every year, that, I think, is the most special part of Pentecost, why we celebrate. That, that you know, it's not just about the tongues. That's the image that dances in our head. Um, that's how we often think of it. The, I call it the whooshing wind, but the rushing wind. The whooshing wind that comes and, and people gather and they wonder, are they drunk? Are they this? And Peter goes, no, it's only 9 a.m. And even for us, that's a little early. Um, right? But the fact that the people who killed Jesus in their sin are, are given that gracious invitation to be merciful to them. All right, now I know we have questions and I want to get a little further. So did you, Randy, you had something and then Dennis. Yeah, yeah, they still were struggling with it in his ascension. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's until this day that then they fully understand. And, and they, you know, it wasn't a... It, it takes time, right? Even Paul, right? He kind of, it, it, it doesn't just happen like that. He has to take time seeking the scriptures, and the Spirit has to lead him to this knowledge. Um, you know, so those disciples though Jesus under, opens up their understanding of the Scriptures, it is that promise of the Holy Spirit, which we see on Pentecost, that truly um, makes it click. All right, Dennis. Oh. Okay. Well, yeah, sins of omission and commission. I mean... I am struck. I was struck this morning knowing that this, um, this was going to be the section I was covering, and specifically the, the rich ruler. You know, uh, if that guy walked into church and was told, you need to confess, most merciful God, I confess before you, I'm sinful and unclean, it would have seemed like the complete opposite of what he was supposed to do. In his mind, what he was supposed to come into church uh, with the attitude of, you know, great and awesome God, thank you for allowing me to be so great and awesome. I have tried really hard over all these years to keep these things from my youth, and I've done it. Thank you for all the things that I'm able to do. And I was struck this morning when we, we were going through the confession. You know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But more so than that, we make that confession that each and every one of us, every single day, are sinful and unclean. In thought, word, and deed, by the things we do and by the things we look the other way at. The things we don't do. You know? And... and there's not a single one of us that could even, well, hopefully none of us, think they can kind of take the same attitude as that ruler. That, that oh, I've done these things. And it doesn't matter how frequently you've been in church. I think that's one thing that has really struck me over the last three years. You know, being a pastor, sometimes you hear that. You know, I, I know I'm not a good Christian. I haven't been in church a, a lot. And I said, that the ones in church aren't good Christians either. <laughs> you know, as a pastor, I'm not a good Christian. I'm a sinful Christian. And, 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 you know, we all come to that table in the same humble and yet in Christ exalted state. And that exaltation is in his glory. Okay, so I got, Bud, did you have one too? And then Don? Okay, we'll go to Don first. Yeah, the hour has not yet come. Yeah, so the comments made it. The, the fact, I, and I, I kind of emphasized that when I, read, when I read it, the saying was hidden. 
that it wasn't, uh, I, I do think there is an aspect to it, that you're absolutely right, Don, that there is an intentionality to the fact that it is hidden um, here. And partly because, what is the coming glory of Christ? I'm going to be crucified and then raised from the dead. Just what he says um, to them. It, it's, you know, like when the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and said, when you come into your glory, would you put one of my kids at your left and one at the right? And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Um, you know, and I always point out, and he says, and there's a place already prepared, or there, there is uh, those for whom that place is already prepared. And there, I, see, I believe Jesus is, has directly in mind a single individual, uh, the thief on the cross. That if your kids are at my left and my right, this individual will never be saved. But that's a whole other story we can, or not story, but that's a whole other discussion topic that we can get into. But you, you're right. I mean, I think there's an aspect to where this is not, it's not supposed to be fully understood in the moment. Right? Even like on Transfiguration, you know, Peter there, again, I, I said I wasn't going to pick on Peter. I'm just picking on Peter the whole hour. What's his response? Tis good to be here. Yeah, let's build tents. Right? Um, one, you're in the presence of the glory of God and you're a poor, miserable sinner. Not good. Right? This is when people die. Uh, but two, don't, you don't need to worry about tents. This is just a foreshadowing of the glory that is coming. Um, and, and a glory that is coming in a way that you'll never be able to fully anticipate. Even John, last book of the Bible, the island of Patmos, right? He's confronted with the resurrected Christ. And what does John do? He, even, he acknowledges even then. He doesn't say it's good to be here. He falls the, down as though dead. Right? That a poor, miserable sinner understands that uh, in the context of our sin, we have no right to stand before God. We have no right to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It can't be done. But rather, in the context of Christ, it has been done for us. All right, bud. Yeah. Yes. Well, and we're going to see that in the next... Uh, we can get to the next thing, because I forgot before the 10 minutes, we have uh, Zacchaeus, which I think ties directly into all of this, right? And again, I said, this is very intentionally laid out, and you saw that. Who is the true disciple? I said that last week, I'll say that again. Who so far has been the true disciple? Children? Tax collectors? At least one leper? A blind guy? Um, so let's go to chapter 19. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. This is where the child in me goes, and Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to meet the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, uh, if you've not heard this before, why, why was a, a tax collector so often the one used here as an example of a sinner? And why was Zacchaeus seen as a sinner? Okay, they were corrupt. Yeah. What, what were they? Pawns of Rome. They were Jews who, were, who allowed themselves to get rich off of persecuting other Jews, at least how the people, society saw it. And often were corrupt, Ruth. Um, they often, in addition to helping Caesar out, helped themselves out quite a bit. And so they ended up often having lavish, um, more lavish than the average, you know, everyday guy lifestyles. 
not quite to the level of like a, a governor or anything like that, but they would be, you know, what you'd consider solidly upper middle class. You know, they had a house right down Ballas or something like that, right? Um, and, and they did it in ways that hurt the people that they were supposed to be kin in kin with, kinship with, um, hurt their own people. And so Jesus, when he says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to eat in your house. I, I, it is, uh, I must stay at your house today. You have the same reaction of grumbling that you had when what happened in Luke 15? When he was sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners, right before the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the prodigal son, what's the issue? They're scribes and Pharisees, tax collectors and sinners, and they grumbled because he's eating with these guys, the tax collectors and the sinners. Here's the same thing. He says, of all the people in Jericho, I'm sure there were pious and faithful, devout Jews in Jericho, even those who desired to spend time with Jesus, even those who may have even believed wholeheartedly that he was the, the coming Messiah and, and remained faithful to that belief. But of all the people he comes to stay with, he says, I must stay with Zacchaeus, a guy who has hurt his neighbor time and time again, <laughs> who has got rich off his neighbor, got rich off the backs of his fellow Jews for the sake of Rome. And so they grumble and they're angry. And at some point, Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, half the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Uh, I want to be very clear here. <laughs> this is not, the next words of Jesus are not necessarily a cause and effect of what Zacchaeus has done. Because very easily you could take this into works righteousness again, like Peter did, right? That's how Peter viewed what he did. I gave up everything and followed you, Jesus. Here Zacchaeus could easily uh, you could misread this and, and say that something like, because Zacchaeus was able to make up for all that he did wrong, therefore he was saved. But also don't dismiss the other fact. I think sometimes we forget that Zacchaeus did make up for all that he did wrong. That part of his repentance, part of that confession of faith, was that the people I have wronged, <laughs> I will seek to make it right. Now, is there anything in writing it with those people that cleansed him from his sins with God? No. Only through God's grace and mercy. Um, but I love verse 10. If we could remember verse 10 in our church, we would be, I think, uh, all the better for it. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to seek and save the lost. All right? And that's one of our mission statements here at St. Paul's. Not only is it to strengthen the saved, but to...